Tiffany and you One and one together make two And all the stories that are true Tiffany and you Hi everyone, it's Tiffany and you're listening to Tiffany and You. Today I have the CEO and founder of Miracle Messages, Kevin Adler. So Kevin and I met I want to say probably 2017 or so, we're both part of a really great community called Sandbox, and we just so happened to be on a retreat together in Tahoe. I got to learn a little bit more about his work. He's an amazing storyteller and thought it was extremely topical to have him on the show today. Well, thanks, Tiffany. And, and likewise, very inspired by your work. And what a great name <laughs> for a, a podcast, Tiffany well, and you. Are you kidding me? Can we, can we just... Acknowledge that. So That's, every episode what a great is, name. so this episode is actually called Tiffany and Kevin, which I like that. So, so yeah, so uh, the one, the one time or one of the many times my last name does come in handy, but figure we would kick it off. Perfect. I would love to have our listeners learn a little bit more about you and how you came into starting Miracle Messages. Yeah, no, thank you. So uh, I uh, had an uncle who was homeless for about 30 years. Uh, he suffered from schizophrenia on and off the streets. And I never really thought of him as a homeless man. Uh, I just kind of thought of him as my beloved uncle. And so after he passed away, I started just thinking a little deeper about the people I was passing every day on, on the street. You know, I worked in ed tech, kind of I've always been a social entrepreneur. And so I'd go to the office and leave and come home thinking, oh, yeah, I'm making the world a better place and trying to do that. But then I'd see this, you know, more and more suffering. It just started being recognized as, wow, an experience that people like my uncle, uh, you know, are, are, are going through. And so uh, I started initially uh, with this question of how can I use storytelling tools like smartphones, social media, wearable cameras to help tell the stories of people like my uncle Mark. So they're less invisible. And uh, a project, the first project was uh, called Homeless GoPro, where over the course of a year, uh, 24 individuals experiencing homelessness volunteered to wear GoPro cameras around their chests and narrate their experience of what life is like on the streets. And so I got the footage back. I uh, was really overwhelmed by what I heard and what I saw uh, and Specific to Miracle Messages, I heard uh, a quote that started being said over and over in different versions. And it was something like, hey, you know, I never realized I was homeless when I lost my housing, only when I lost my family and friends. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, that makes total sense. But I've never heard any service provider articulate it, any government agency articulate this, what I've come to call relational poverty aspect of homelessness, this isolation, this disconnectedness. So long story, sort of short, uh, I decided in December 2014 to take a walk down Market Street, downtown San Francisco, went up to every person I saw who was experiencing homelessness and just asked them a very simple question. Do you have any family or friends you'd like to reconnect with? And first person I met uh, was a man named Jeffrey. He said he hadn't seen his family in 22 years. On the spot, I sat down with him, asked if he'd like to record a video message to his uh, niece, his nephew, his sister, his dad. He said yes. I went home that night and posted the video and a note about Jeffrey 
on a Facebook group that I found connected to his hometown. Uh, within one hour of that post, uh, the video was shared over a hundred times and it made the local news that night. And classmates, neighbors, people who knew Jeffrey started commenting, hey, I went to school with Jeffrey. I work in construction. Does he need a job? I work at the congressman's office. Does he need healthcare? First 20 minutes of the post, his sister got tagged. We got on the phone the next day and she told me that Jeffrey was a missing person for 12 years. Um, and this is broad daylight, downtown San Francisco, a few days before Christmas. And so that led me to quit my job and start doing this work full time because I knew Jeffrey wasn't the only one and that this shouldn't be happening. Um, and that is what was uh, what became the, the first miracle message. That's uh, amazing. And, and I think I think what I find so compelling is, you know, I've heard you talk about this difference between homelessness and houselessness before of of that relational poverty. Um, and and I, I, I think what it's also showcasing is the is the the beautiful, the upside, the positive side of social media, of viral messaging, of messages that should be going viral. Um, so I, I'm looking at some of the stats here. It's like 300 families reunited to date. That probably that number is probably higher now. Average of 15-ish years separated from um, separated from their loved ones or or the people they were looking for. I know you've been hosting a, a couple, or you had been hosting a couple of different programs as well around lunches and other things like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So. It's not just me running around with a smartphone uh, on the streets of San Francisco anymore. I do that sometimes. But now we have uh, volunteers uh, that record messages in their own communities. Uh, we have a mobile app that people can download, Miracle Messages in the App Store. We have a hotline. Uh, the phone number is 1-800-MISS-YOU, M-I-S-S-Y-O-U. And that allows clients themselves, individuals experiencing homelessness, and families that are looking for them uh, to reach out and uh, gather the share the information that we need to start the search. There's also an online form, a paper form, uh, and that all goes into a case management system uh, where we have a network of volunteer digital detectives uh, that we train on how to make phone calls, write letters, do digital searches to try to find uh, family members and friends and other loved ones. Uh, so some of the initiatives that we offer on a regular basis um, before COVID-19, and we can talk yeah. about what's happened since, but before COVID-19, uh, we do monthly shelter visits at different uh, facilities in the Bay Area. Uh, so, you know, visit for a meal program and offer a person if they want to reconnect or really just have conversations and get to know our neighbors as neighbors. Uh, we have started an intergenerational buddy system where we've been matching uh, formerly homeless and at risk of homeless senior citizens at affordable housing uh, sites with young professionals for monthly phone calls, uh, check-ins. And that program just got kicked off. We modified it a bit given physical distancing to be all online remote and phone and text based rather than in person. So we have that. Uh, we have a program where we hire people who are formerly homeless as community ambassadors um, and send them to the streets to offer miracle messages to people who are in similar situations uh, to what they're in. And, uh, you know, a whole host of other programs, a program called Find Them, which is uh, helping um, uh, families that have missing homeless relatives 
record messages. And even though that seems like it's a needle in a haystack thing, like, you know, I'm looking for my homeless brother in San Francisco, you know, can you help me find him? Uh, we've actually been able to make about eight reunions uh, from, yeah. from that. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a full and uh, pretty full and complete, uh, you know, set of programs, again, all related to this overarching goal of, um, of reconnecting our neighbors experiencing homelessness with their loved ones, but also with us as their neighbors that are connecting for, with them. For sure. Um, and, and really, and really addressing this relational poverty in all its forms. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, I so as someone who has who doesn't have the lived experience of of homelessness, what do you think is the biggest the biggest misconception? Well, I, I just begin by saying I also don't have the lived experience of homelessness, so I'm always a little wary of uh, you know speaking on, on behalf of people that I haven't you know experienced myself that that uh, horrific thing. Uh, but what I will say is from, you know, 1500 conversations I've now had with our neighbors on the streets, I hear some themes and patterns emerge. Um, you know, one is, uh, you know, related to mental health and, and uh, substance abuse and, and, you know, what people think of as the most common reasons why people are on the streets. It's, it's a considerable factor. Uh, it's certainly a lot of people are there because of substance dependencies or mental health issues, but it's nowhere near the majority. Uh, there's much more uh, of, of homelessness is caused by just poverty, losing home, health issues, losing a job, relational brokenness, domestic violence, LGBTQ youth getting in fights with family, getting kicked out, unsafe living situations, death, divorce, separations. So just, you know, the kinds of stuff that we all face. At some yeah, level. domestic Excuse violence, you know, that um, list, it's just, it's very complex, of course. It's very complex, very complex. For the people who have experienced mental health issues or are, have some substance dependency, the thing that they always say in different forms is they say, you know, the one thing I wish people knew is that I'm so much more of a threat to myself than I am mm. to them. Um, and, and I think that, that kind of reflecting on that comment, the level of introspection and reflection and, and even self-awareness on the streets is, is uh, just mind-boggling. Uh, the number one reason why people are disconnected from their loved ones in our experience is because of shame and embarrassment mm -hmm. and fear. And, you know, it's hard on the outside, if you've never ha been homeless, to say, well, gosh, if I was homeless, you know, I'm calling everyone, I'm making phone calls, I'm posting, I'm like, help me, get me off the streets, I need help now. But a lot of the individuals, they're so embarrassed or ashamed of their situation that they end up not reaching out to their support systems. I know sometimes those support systems aren't there. Sometimes the support systems are fragile or even part of the problem itself in cases of domestic violence or LGBTQ youth. But the, the kind of idea of self-isolating because of something you've done or you're going through and, and buying into this narrative in our society that a pe person who's on the streets is a problem, not a person, uh, that, that's problematic. And we hear that a lot in the reflections of our neighbors yeah. on the streets. And you know, one of the things that I find a lot of parallels with your work and my work is I, I often tell people that one of the best ways to tackle any type of bias is through real life continuous experiences with people who challenge your stereotypes. And that's why I think what yes. the work that you're doing 
you know, getting our housed and unhoused neighbors interacting with each other is a really powerful way to tackle these preconceived notions around what what that experience is like. Um, I do want to trans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it just relationships matter for all of us. And if you're in relationship with people experiencing homelessness, we'll have such a better grasp of the issues and challenges that at least a subset of people face. And if you don't, the best way to learn more about it is to, to build relationships and get make at least one friend who's housing insecure or experiencing homelessness. For sure. um, I do want to transition over to the, I don't even know if I would call it an elephant in the room, an elephant of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. That is the fact that we are living in a global health crisis right now. It, um, about three weeks ago, we're recording this at the beginning of April, about three weeks ago, a shelter in place ordinance was placed on San Francisco. There was some wording mm-hmm. in there that said people who are homeless are exempt from the order, but encouraged to find shelter. I know you were propelled mm-hmm. into action. Wanted to hear a little bit more about kind of how your work has shifted. Whew. Yeah, this is a five hour podcast, right? Um, <laughs> part one. Um, well, part part one, yeah, mini series. Um, well, uh, it's shifted a lot. Uh, and in some ways it, it, it hasn't shifted that much. So in the way it sh- has not shifted, is our core values are still the same. Our core, you know, raison d'etre, uh, why we're here, that's still the same. It's to help people who are experiencing homelessness better connect with their loved ones and with us as their neighbors. And to then work with other providers uh, to try to, you know, uh, make that possible and get them the support that they need and, and they tell their stories in the process. So. Uh, that's pretty consistent. What's shifted is how that's been uh, manifested. So uh, what we've continued doing and has been busier than ever is some of our reunion work. Uh, so in the city of San Francisco, their preeminent reunification program is called Homeward Bound. It's a one-way bus ticket uh, that's been replicated across the country. And that program is right now uh, suspended. You know, there's no homeward bound one-way bus tickets home. Homeward bound is responsible for about 28% of the successful exits uh, from shelters in San Francisco. So when a person leaves a shelter successfully and goes into housing, you know, uh, almost a third of the time it's as a result of uh, reunifying with family through homeward bound. So with that program shut down, our program is still operating. You know, we have our hotline, we have our mobile app, our paper form, online form, our case management system, our digital detectives. So we're getting more and more phone calls. Uh, We're getting more and more referrals. Just a few days ago, we had a referral from Homeward Bound where an individual on the streets, he had lost like his phone and wallet. and, And it was like essentially stuck in San Francisco. And I think was you know, precariously housed or might've been, you know, pretty, pretty low socioeconomic status uh, as it was. Um, But because of the lockdown and all these service providers closing off and shelter shutting down, he couldn't get access to any services. And he was just stuck and like not doing well. And and, in in this city that has essentially shuttered. So he got referred to us within 20 minutes of being on a phone with him. We got a hold of his friend, uh, he hadn't, he had no idea how to reach his friend. We got him on the phone. We connected them on a conference call. 
and the friend said, come, come stay with me during this thing. I want you to get off the streets. And so I think he, he was able to get, get with his friend and, and resolve his situation. So that was exciting. So in addition to the reunification services and increasing capacity on the hotline and, and other tools, and imagine find them too with families. If you had a brother on the streets right now or a son or a mom, you'd be terrified even yeah. more than usual. Like, how are they doing? So we're working with uh, those cases to try to you know, resolve them. Uh, we've also been uh, working on the front lines with providers that are in need of hand sanitizer and uh, wipes and masks. Um, and so we've worked now with about 20 or 25 different service providers and hospitals in the Bay Area to get to use our volunteer network and, and kind of infrastructure to procure hand sanitizer uh, and other critical supplies and then get them delivered. Uh, so we've done about 100 or so deliveries with 20 or 25 organizations. Um, and then the Miracle Friends has launched with a intergenerational buddy system. Um, and there's a few initiatives that are coming up in the next uh, few days or next couple weeks that uh, I'm really excited about that basically expand on some of these programs in a more kind of uh, sustainable way uh, at an even larger scale. So uh, I'll have to point people out to our website, miraclemessages.org uh, to stay tuned for when that's uh, for when that's sure. Released. We're going to take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we'll continue talking about some of the work that you're doing and what you're seeing on the front lines. Great. And we're back with Kevin Adler, the CEO and founder of Miracle Messages. Uh, before the break, he was chatting with us a little bit about how their work has and hasn't shifted since COVID-19. Some of the work, some of the great work he's been doing in terms of getting supplies to service providers. I remember seeing on WhatsApp some of the messages that you sent when shelter in place was first put into place around getting some distilleries to start making more hand sanitizer was what, what was the thinking kind of behind getting the large doses of those? Were you in contact with the service providers already knowing that they were going to need them? I believe we're still very much shorthanded with, with a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of supplies. Yeah, we are uh, very much so. Uh, so, you know, as initial context for that question, I, I studied in, in grad school uh, how disasters and shared traumas can act as a catalyst to bring people together. Um, and actually wrote a book on that topic. And the reason I mentioned that is I've been thinking about disasters, traumas, collective experiences uh, as it relates to homelessness and housing insecure individuals for a long time. And because I've been kind of looking at different examples and problems in different communities, I'm aware of a few uh, needs that emerge anytime that there's, uh, you know, a disaster. And one of them is coordinating of supplies. Mm. Um, and so seeing that over and over, there's been organizations that have kind of come and gone that have tried to solve that problem. But when you're in a crisis mode, it's so important to have a little bit of infrastructure, but really the social capital of relationships, the credibility, the trust, the, you know, we know who this person is, so we'll share it. And they have, you know, vested interests in our community. Um, so I just thought that we could play a very crucial role as an organization that, you know, is essentially still operating at full capacity, but is not on the front lines and doesn't have the, the worry of 
operating a shelter or a soup kitchen, that we could probably provide support to those organizations that do operate shelters and soup kitchens. Um, and so as just started hearing about needs, put together a spreadsheet and, you know, multiple iterations of it, it, it ended up being a very useful tool for, you know, about 20, 25 organizations to get hand sanitizer, masks, express needs, get matched up with needs. Um, and that still lives at miraclemessages.org slash items, uh, where uh, if you have extra supply of something, you can donate it, uh, you can claim items, you can express a need. Uh, to your question, though, about hand sanitizer and procuring larger supply, it became very quickly apparent that just the numbers were so much greater on the uh, on the demand side than the supply side. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the little four ounce, eight ounce containers of hand sanitizer, the extra thing of Lysol wipes versus a shelter with 400 people, which is totally out of hand sanitizer. Uh, and so that's where we've started working with distilleries, trying to get them to produce sanitizer, get it shipped, delivered, coordinating the dots. Um, and, you know, in, in times of crisis, there's a lot of confusion and misinformation. And so we thought that one thing we can do is just play this, you know, somewhat of a clarifying role is if you in, you're in need of this and you don't know where you're going to get it, it shouldn't be incumbent on you to do all this research and legwork to try to find it. We can try to connect those dots. And, and so grateful that we've been able to play that role. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and and I, if I haven't said it already, I'm so grateful for your leadership. Like I know, you know, many of us have been talking about how the ability to shelter in place is really rooted in privilege. And the fact yes. that, you know, we do have the ability to do that. Um, I wanted to ask you, so I'm just looking at an article, I don't know if the numbers are correct, but it's talking about 5,100 un unsheltered individuals within San Francisco, almost 800 people on the wait list. Have you been, like, ha have we been able to get a hold of um, social distancing for our unhoused community members? Uh, no. <laughs> no. And that's, that's a problem. Okay. Um, and, and I think I yeah. have seen, and I don't know if you're a part of this, but I have seen Supervisor Dean Preston running mm -hmm. a GoFundMe to try and yes, book some uh, empty hotels. hotel rooms. And folks, and the city's working on this. Um, and there's, you know, various uh, dynamics there uh, between hotels, different departments, trying to make this feasible to essentially get hundreds, if not thousands of people experiencing homelessness into vacant hotel rooms immediately, which is what should happen. <laughs> you know, it, it's needed, it's essential. They have to be emergency. They have to be housed in this emergency somewhere. And hotels, motels make a ton of sense. Um, so the first few hundred have started moving into hotels in addition to individual efforts on you know, GoFundMe by Supervisor Preston. Um, and a lot more, I believe, over the next week is going we're going to see being moved into the hotels. And let's remember for a second, you know, as, as we all know that these folks need to be housed somewhere. I think that's the increasing consensus that you can't just leave people on the streets, that that's not only immoral, but it's gonna create and exacerbate this public health crisis. It's gonna elongate the curve uh, and it's gonna be a huge cost on our hospitals, which are already way overtaxed. As mm -hmm. people on the streets use the hospitals, the uh, emergency rooms as waiting rooms in the best of times. Uh, so the consensus is there, but we should remember that this isn't a problem specific and exclusive to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, 
LA, San Diego, Seattle, New York, uh, all these communities, South Florida, they're all either experiencing or will soon be experiencing this massive need to shelter people on the street. So the question then becomes, what are they going to do? How are they going to do it? And then what comes next? You get them into hotels for a couple months. Uh, I think Gavin Newsom, governor of California, has now announced this you know, program to get people into hotels for three months. Uh, but what then? And to mm-hmm. me, this is a once in a generation opportunity to solve, to really get to the underlying needs of housing people um, and not transitioning people in three months from hotels to back to the streets. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you seen, have you seen examples of any place that's doing it right right now? Yeah. Uh, well, right, right now in different ways, I think, you know, it's right when a couple hundred people get into a hotel room. Uh, it's right when, you know, the city is working with private organizations, companies, nonprofits like us to procure supply and referring uh, to partners that they otherwise normally wouldn't. Uh, you know, it's right when distilleries are, you know, working with the FDA to loosen compliance restrictions on production and are able to start uh, mass, you know, producing and manufacturing hand sanitizer. So I think there's a lot of bright spots for sure. And there's a lot of hope uh, in what I'm referring to as, as the homeless front of COVID-19. Mm. You know, we need to mobilize the home front. We always think of that from World War II. There's a homeless front that needs to be mobilized. And, you know, Britain an op-ed on this that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks. So uh, I, I see a lot of examples of hope that I list in that op-ed, uh, but I, I think that the need and the, the, the pain and the challenge is so much greater than what's being done right now. So we have to step it up even more. Absolutely. And we're totally living in unprecedented times where there isn't really a rule book. Um, just, just wanted to close the conversation by saying mm-hmm. like how, for those of us who are sheltering in place, how can we help? Um, and for those of us who do have the ability to kind of get out into the community, deliver things if needed, um, yep. yeah, what does the extent of help look like? Great. Three very tangible things. One, if you're uh, able, if you have a home to stay at, stay at it uh, and know how fortunate you are to have a home and that's safe. So that's number one. Hashtag stay uh, home. Hashtag stay home. Number two is let's hold the government accountable on this. Now's the time to be pushing for uh, people to get housed into hotels. What are you doing for this? Um, What kind of economic relief measures are you implementing for people who are unstably housed and at risk of homelessness after this have lost their jobs? Um, How are you helping people who are in emergency shelter situations or have to shelter in encampments to make sure they still get services? So keeping the government accountable and, you know, tweeting, petitions, just awareness, having conversations like this, very important. And then the third thing uh, is really, you know, to be one of the most tangible uh, as it relates to homelessness, get involved with your local homeless nonprofits. So, again, Homeless Front, uh, people go to thehomelessfront.org. It's a website that we are launching, hopefully by the time of this uh, podcast publication, Uh, which is really the hub for all homeless-related initiatives around COVID-19. Examples include uh, coordinating supplies, getting involved as a buddy for people experiencing homelessness, 
donating your time, helping locate loved ones, deliver messages, recording messages, answering hotline calls. So it's stuff that we're doing at Miracle Messages, but it's also stuff we're uplifting from other grassroots initiatives around the country. Uh, so again, they can go to our website, miraclemessages.org or thehomelessfront.org and get involved. And the final thing I just say is, I think it's so important right now for people to take a moment and realize that they fundamentally, all of us, we fundamentally see homelessness differently than the government does. And that's always been the case. The government sees homelessness fundamentally as a problem to be solved. Mm. We agree with that. That's true. There is a problem to be solved. But we also see the context that the government often misses. We hear the stories. We see the signs. We see the new RVs on our streets. We see people and we listen and we say, that's someone's mom or dad, brother or sister, someone's son or daughter. Essentially, we see homeless people, people experiencing homelessness, not as problems to be solved, but as people to be loved. Mm. And so if we carry that uh, framework, that mindset at this time, we're going to show up for them in the same way we're showing up right now for our elderly neighbors, our immunocompromised friends, and other vulnerable individuals maybe who have lost jobs that we care about. Suddenly, we encompass the homeless, people experiencing homelessness as part of what uh, constitutes our community. Beautiful. Um, and I know you've been hosting these like homelessness task force meetings. Are yes. those, those are still happening? Yeah, every uh, Mondays and Thursdays at 12 noon, we, anyone who is interested in getting involved around this issue, they can call into our task force uh, and uh, again, learn about that on our website, fill out the get involved form and we'll send you the info. Um, and then uh, we also have uh, a, a briefing, I believe, Mondays and Thursdays also around 2.30 p.m. Pacific time on Facebook, where we do a Facebook Live and just kind of share updates of what's going on and have people who ask questions of us. That's great. Um, one of the things that we are talking about within the disability community is what the world is going to look like after this pandemic. And a lot of mm. us are very concerned and want to make sure that we have a seat at the table in terms of what this new world is going to look like. I guess mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, and it's, I'm sure it may be hard to take your head out of being on the front lines right now, but what are you hoping we learn, we will learn from this that we can then, you know, bring forward as we, as we work with our unhoused neighbors? Well, I'll answer in two ways. So there's one that I could answer that I think probably anyone who's listening who has, you know, half a brain and half a heart could probably answer it as much as I could, which is let's house the homeless, let's care about them, let's support organizations that work with them, let's not allow the status quo to be returned, all of that, right? I think the thing that I'd probably emphasize that maybe is a unique or important perspective I haven't heard is in a time of disaster, there's various phases to the disaster. There's the initial event itself, and then there's this initial response and relief work, and then there's this longer recovery work. Mm. Uh, those are general phases, but those phases begin and end at different times for different communities. Mm. And so what will happen is there'll be a moment very soon where we may say all clear, and we're going back to our normal life, where we say, hey, now we're looking at post-disaster, let's reflect, let's rebuild, let's be better together. Fundamentally, if you're truly wanting to be in solidarity with the populations that you care about, it's almost offensive 
to be having a conversation like that while people are still suffering, dying, and in the midst of their traumatic experience of the disaster. And so I think before we start looking at the future world on homelessness, we need to zero in on what's happening right now, be adjacent to proximate to uh, in solidarity with our neighbors on the streets and do whatever we can to live those values that we will inform what we want to happen, you know, a, a year or two years down the line. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we'll close all of this. I, I do want to know, what are you doing to take care of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been, I'm in probably the best shape I've been in in like years. It's crazy. I do yoga every morning. Uh, suddenly, I don't need a yoga class at the studio to do it. I just put on YouTube. Uh, so doing that, I've been uh, getting 15,000 steps in a day. I journal a day, every day. I, I think every single day, I've, I haven't missed a day of just capturing my thoughts, reflection. I do a morning Bible study. Uh, so as a, as a Christian, it's important for me to kind of stay rooted in the word and, you know, and have that kind of help guide my day. Um, and then just eating healthy and making sure I have at least one or two conversations with friends and colleagues. And then the real, this is the, the real fun answer. I gave you all the, oh, that's so nice, Kevin. Thanks for that. Here's the, <laughs> here's the fun one. Uh, so I love Spanish uh, and I, I lived in Mexico for a year, um, but I have it's hard to stay fluent when you're, you know, you don't have all that many friends that are native speakers. You just talk in English all the time. So I've always been wondering, like, how can I just stay fluent with Spanish? I, I love it. I'm losing the language. I'm not as you know advanced as I was before. And I realized, like, when I'm eating a meal, I'm kind of just searching on YouTube for different videos or, you know, reading articles. And I need something else. I started watching telenovelas. Mm. Okay? It's Mexican soap operas. And what I do is I put the subtitles on in Spanish and then the dialogue in Spanish. And if I need to, what I'm literally doing is pausing it every like three minutes, writing down what they just said, and then putting it into a translate box if I don't know the words. Huh. And so I'm essentially, you know, like doing more Spanish studies in, you know, 10 years since I lived in Mexico by watching these, you know, ridiculous telenovelas while I eat, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, if I'm not doing like a phone call. It's so fun. So I'm really wrapped up into some of these shows right now. I love it. And I, I, I can feel your energy and excitement around that. That's actually how I taught myself Mandarin way, way back when, when I was still in college and wanted mm. to keep it up. Um, I know you've provided the links to miraclemessages.org and some of the other yep. initiatives you, you're working on. Is there, are there any, is there, are there any other sites or social media you'd like our listeners to follow you on? I think miraclemessages.org or you can go on Facebook. Uh, we're pretty active on there. So just search Miracle Messages. But uh, yeah, please be in touch. Uh, you're needed right now. We need you. And more importantly, your neighbors need you uh, to show up for them right now. Great. Thanks so much, Kevin. And thanks for, for being on our show. My pleasure. Tiffany and you, Tiffany and Kevin signing off. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Tiffany and You. This is your host, Tiffany Yu. My ultimate hope for this is that we can co-create something beautiful together. So if you have feedback or suggestions on topics you'd like us to explore, I'd love to hear from you. This podcast now has its own Instagram handle at Tiffany and you, and you can also find me across social media at I'm Tiffany Yu. That's the letter I, the letter M, followed by my first and last name. 
We're hoping to drop episodes every Tuesday, so I hope you'll join us for the next episode. And a special thank you to Root Hub for my opening and closing podcast medley. Tiffany and you This one is done and another coming soon A special rendezvous For Tiffany and